Shalom Aleichem, welcome to the Schmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I'm visiting with Rochelle Grossman, bibliography and collections manager at the Yiddish Book Center. Rochelle is a specialist in Yiddish print culture, and she's completing a doctorate in comparative literature at Harvard University. Prior to joining the Yiddish Book Center, Rochelle lived in Warsaw, where she researched post-war Yiddish publishing. Previously, she participated in the Yiddish Book Center's Steiner Summer Yiddish Program and was a Yiddish language pedagogy fellow. She holds a master's in Jewish education and a bachelor's in modern Jewish studies from the Jewish Theological Seminary, as well as a bachelor's in comparative literature from Columbia University. Welcome. Thanks, Lisa. So great to have you here. Um, and I know you are um, the selected spokesperson for the bibliography department. Uh, I, I know that you and David Mazauer, our research bibliographer, um, have had a very exciting week announcing the fact that we have digitized the Muscovert collection. Yes, it's been very exciting that the 100 volume series, Mustaverk von der Jüdischer Literatur, uh, the masterworks of Yiddish literature. Um, we've been able to finally add this to our digital library. So I'm very pleased about that. And um, we are very grateful to the folks um, who collaborated with us and made this possible. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a bit, but it's also fun to have you on because um, long before you joined or a year before you joined, I had heard tell that Muscovert series was very near and dear to you. Um, and I think we stashed away some for you at one point. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so um, can you tell me a little bit about how you found your way to this work? And also um, just a little bit about what the series is all about. Absolutely. So I guess it was nearly five years ago now. I was in Buenos Aires. I was at um, the Instituto Julio de Investigación, Evo, um, in Buenos Aires. And I was doing research on, of course, on Yiddish, on Yiddish in Latin America, and about Yiddish in Argentina. And I was introduced to this amazing series, 100 works of Yiddish literature that were um, compiled and published out of Buenos Aires by uh, Shmuel Rojansky, who was the director um, back in the day of the Evo Institute there. And for me, it was this amazing idea that you could not just have a sort of 100 classic works or 100 essential works, but that each book was itself constructing a kind of Yiddish land, a little world. And then all taken together, it's sort of like um, a universe. What is this culture? and how you can have it on your shelf and reference it and learn from it. And I became super fascinated by this project, by how they were created, um, how the series is structured and what is included in it. It's interesting to me, you wrote um, an annotated guide that we posted on our website um, to the series. And you wrote about um, Shmuel Rosansky um, and how he put this together. Can you talk a little bit about him as um, sort of a prominent educator and um, what his thinking was about why, why launch this? Sure. Well, Shmuel Rajansky, he was one of the biggest names in the Yiddish in a scene in Buenos Aires. Um, he moved to Buenos Aires as a younger man and lived there 
for his the rest of his life. Um, and he was deeply involved in all sorts of projects. He wrote for the Yiddish press. He was involved in Yiddish theater. He was an educator, as you mentioned. And as I mentioned, he also was this uh, director of this institute, the founding director, really. And for him, thinking about post-war Yiddish and Yiddish after the Holocaust, um, he was surprised in a way, I think, by the real proliferation of books that came out of Argentina, many of which were about memorializing um, communities that had been murdered, people who had died, sort of um, thinking about the really important project of mourning the losses of the Holocaust. And he, he reacted to this by thinking about the ways in which Yiddish was still necessary and that younger students needed to have books that they could use so that they could learn Yiddish and use Yiddish and be inspired by Yiddish and to find a way to make Yiddish uh, relevant for this next generation and, um, and beyond. And so that's really what motivated him and inspired him to think about how he could uh, take this, this Yerusha, this inheritance, and not just leave it sort of as a relic of the past, but make it part of the lives of people who were, who were living and who, who were young. And that sort of um, was kind of his intention when he set out to do this. Now, as you mentioned, each of the books is more or less dedicated to sort of a single singular topic writer. Is that correct? Yeah, so so many of them are anthologies. Um, he has single author volumes and um, a few that are dedicated, for example, to to the Tevya stories, right, by Shalom Aleichem. But then sort of as the series goes on, they become a lot more anthological and they are dedicated not just to a single author, but to a kind of theme, as you mentioned. So a delightful one um, is a book of Yiddish poetry about Yiddish. So it's just a collection of different poems that are talking about different aspects of Yiddish and, and how people have different feelings about Yiddish. Is it friendly, warm, nostalgic, negative, old fashioned, you know, a whole range of emotions. And that's just one of these volumes, but he has so many more um, that look at many different aspects of, of Yiddish, literature and and also music and and photographs and and many other things that he includes as well. Do we know much about him in terms of the editorial process? It seems like it was sort of a very singular vision. So this is something curious about the series. I mean, you must know when you do um, all sorts of publications um, that it's almost never something that can be done by one person. And certainly Rajansky was supported by um, by a team. He had a funder who he looked to, and the funder was from South Africa. And there were also other people from the Yiddish literary environment who, who helped him as his, um, you know, as a committee member, as a, as a secretary, those sorts of things. But in terms of the real editorial process, my understanding is that Rajansky was sort of um, alone in deciding what would be included and what not. So one thing that really strikes me is he has a volume on Yiddish in Chile, and he writes in his introduction about this, that he really wanted to include all sorts of things. 
And he went to Chile and he just couldn't find things that the community there at the time, they didn't have very much going on, or it was really a moment of crisis. This is right before the dictatorship. And so he returns to Buenos Aires and from his own library and his own collection, he assembles this book because he thought it would be really crucially important that he did that. And then in the process of doing that, his friends in Chile managed to find a whole trove of Yiddish literature kind of hidden in a garage somewhere about to be thrown away, old newspapers and things, and they managed to send it to him. And so, you know, still Rozhansky is the one who's deciding what's included. It's not, in my opinion, really a kind of, um, uh, you know, it's not really a submission process so much as Rozhansky is, is deciding what, what are the pieces that belong in this series. It's, yeah, it sounds like it's an amazing trove, um, one that I wish I could dip into if I knew Yiddish. Um, and I'm curious, you mentioned in your piece, again, um, some examples of the writers, Avram Sutzkever, Kadya Molodovsky, Itzka Monger, um, Sholem Alechem, Ayel Peretz, um, Sholem Ash. It's quite a list. Um, were these works that were appearing elsewhere or were they... Um, original and one-offs in in the series? This is a great question. And I suppose um, I suppose it's it's very difficult to say ultimately, though my sense is that almost every piece that's published in the series is a reprint from somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And that's in part because a lot of the literature, even though it's meant for the post-war reader, a lot of the literature was written um, earlier and then was sort of reassembled in this form in a way that would be affordable to, um, to young people and to casual readers. And um, at the same time, he also did include a lot of things that were being published sort of maybe in, in other journals or newspapers, but that then he was also able to include them in his anthologies as it was relevant to what he was hoping to uh, kind of say more generally about Yiddish literature. It may not be a question that you can answer. It may be unfair for me to ask, but what the heck? Really curious if, um, if he edited a lot of these writers, hmm. um, them together, it'd be kind of fun. We will have to, we'll have to delve deep and <laughs> where, where else these stories appear. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, go ahead. But no, no, go ahead. Oh, well, it's just, it's, it's definitely possible. I think that when we talk about the role of the editor, especially with these uh, post-war productions like uh, The Golden Cape by Avram Sutzkever, for example, what is often said about that is that Sutzkever was a very um, attentive, let's say, editor. And he was very interested in making sure that the pieces that he published fit a specific kind of, of, uh, of mode. And I have heard that Rozhansky, though not as famous maybe and, uh, and not receiving new writings, he also was um, very particular about editing things. And one thing that he was very attentive to was orthography. And so the, the volumes, although the earlier volumes do not necessarily exactly follow the YIVO standard, they, they later on they do. And I just remember looking at um, Rozhansky's archive while I was in Argentina and I could see how he had taken a red pen and he had marked all of these 
things on these works. And he had pieces from different newspapers and he had changed the spellings and written little things. And who's to say how much he edited? I, I don't know that he edited things for content in a way that we would find objectionable, but he definitely did have a hand in changing the way that the literature looked, at least in terms of the spelling, the orthography and those sorts of things to make them standardized. I would imagine he would be very happy to know that this was digitized and so now accessible. Sure, I think that um, when I read about Rajansky's goals and what he hoped to do with this project, he was really, really invested in the idea that Yiddish literature should be open and available to anybody. It should be affordable. It should be accessible also globally. He was very, very concerned that this literature was a global literature and that it represented uh, people from all over the world and it should be consumed and read by them. And um, he died in, in 1994. And so that's um, you know quite, quite a bit before we had our digital library, but to think about the ways in which the digitization of this series sort of is the next step in, in its life, that to me sort of um, fulfills a lot of the promise that he, he set out to do that now anybody anywhere can read these and can access them. And so I'm, I'm really proud that I was able to participate in this. It's, it's pretty major. Um, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention that, you know, obviously we are incredibly grateful to um, Buenos Aires IWO director Avram Lichtenbaum for making this possible with the Yiddish Book Center. It's been a tremendous collaboration. And as you say, a long way in the making. It's a lot of scanning. I was thinking about <laughs> it the other night. <laughs> Maybe, yeah, for our listeners um, who haven't popped onto our website, but should to read all about this and to sort of see some physical volumes. They're, they're lovely little, um, little volumes. Can you talk about them just in terms of page length and size um, and color? Yeah. So they look beautiful on a shelf, which I suppose you miss out on if you are just looking at the digital versions, but um, there are of course, 100 of them and they are all in different colors. And so on the shelf, it's um, just this beautiful array of these little colorful Yiddish books. And they're not little, actually. Each book is on average about 250 pages and some are larger. Um, all told, at least according to Rozhansky's own estimation, there are at least 31,000 pages in, in the series in total. And um, that's remarkable to think about that. And what I think is also so beautiful about these volumes as I see them here in the vault is that, of course, they're, they're colorful on the inside, but many of them also have these little dust jackets that have an image of some, you know, usually an archival uh, image on the cover or something nice that sort of, again, speaks to the particular uh, character of each independent volume, which which as I mentioned is trying to do something so specific to emphasize an aspect of Yiddish that taken together this 100 volume series is really painting a picture that this is a, a whole heritage that you can have on your shelf and look at and touch and read and access. Um, I wonder, because I know that this is, Latin America is an area that you 
um, have studied. Um, yes. Um, mm-hmm. Yiddish. Can you speak a little bit about um, the sort of uh, the Yiddish culture in Buenos Aires about the time that these began being published and sort of what that vibrant community was like, if it was vibrant? Sure. And it, it was, it was very vibrant. So um, the history of Yiddish in, in Argentina is an interesting parallel to that of the United States, that there was a large Jewish uh, Ashkenazi community that had immigrated there throughout the early decades of the 20th century. And then after the Holocaust, there were again, more waves of immigration to especially Buenos Aires, but also other parts. And what's particularly unique about Buenos Aires is that there was just this immense energy to publish things. And so I mentioned that Rojansky um, kind of surveyed the scene and saw that there was an energy to publish memorial literature. And that really speaks to the kind of cultural capital, the intellectual capacity, the kind of community that was around, that there was an ability to publish just lots and lots of books. So before this 100 volume series, there was uh, Mark Turkov's Dos Poilische Jedentum, which is even larger. It's over 250 uh, books that are all about uh, Polish Jewry, sort of largely construed. And those were also a kind of global undertaking with people sending in their works from all over the world. And that's different because a lot of those works were unique and original and um, I mean, famously, Elie Wiesel's first version of what became known as Night was published as part of the series. And it was just, you know, one example of other things that are going on in Buenos Aires in this post-war period, that there was a lot, that Ikuf was publishing a lot of things, a sort of um, communist Yiddish literature. And um, there was a new series of Peretz's uh, collected works that was published also in Buenos Aires in the 40s. And another press um, was also working called uh, Yidbuch, and they published mostly for schools. So there's a lot happening. There's a school system, there's this community, there's this institute, and there are lots of different people who have their rivalries and their places that they write and the newspapers they don't write for. So just all in all, a really colorful and um, an interesting community. Um, I know that you and David and the fellows have all been doing Herculean work, not only dealing with the onslaught of donations, but also spending a lot of time, um, which brought you here last summer, um, to help us in the book vault. And curious to know, did we have the entire series? Did we have to get it supplemented um, in order to get it all scanned? So what's... um... What's interesting to me is that in some cases, we have many, many duplicates of certain volumes and other volumes are pretty rare. And this is something not just here at the book center where we have so many things here, um, you know, a great access to all sorts of Yiddish books, but even um, colleagues and friends I know who collect these volumes, it's sort of um, kind of like a club, people want to know, did you get a full set? Which ones are you missing? Oh, number 99 is hard to find. Oh yeah, I know about that one. And so it's sort of 
part of the set that certain volumes were published uh, with many different um, runs actually, because they were so popular. And then of course, inevitably, I suppose, um, the later run of the series, you get into the eighties and people are less eager and less interested in having these volumes. And those are often the ones that are harder to find. And the collection here at the Yiddish Book Center also reflects that, that many of the scarcer volumes are ones that come at the end of the series. It's really interesting. And in working with the series um, and your colleagues, thoughts about what did people have particular favorites? Oh, that's a, that's a great question. I think I think many people have their own favorites, you know, one that calls to them maybe because of the theme or how it looks. I mean, I, as I mentioned, I really like the, the chili volume. Um, partially because there are a lot of writers that are featured in it that I'd never heard of, but whose work is just really beautiful. There's one story in the Chile, it's called Chilenish, so sort of like Chilean Yiddish. Um, there's one story in this volume that is a travelogue um, about somebody who's tra traveling from Mendoza, Argentina, through the mountains to go to Chile. And the way that the story is narrated, it's as though you're stepping sort of into the heavens and out of time. And there's a lot of references to different kinds of uh, mystical and folkloric things. And it's really beautiful literature that I think we don't really hear about at all because it's from a place that is not uh, well studied and by somebody who's not well known. And the Musterwerk really includes all of these people you know, the, the big names next to the little names that you can find them there, you know, in, in all sorts of different ways. And do you think it launched any careers? Hmm. Well, that's difficult to say because I think most of what's been published in the Musterwerk was uh, works that were already published elsewhere. So sort of if they were published in De Golden Decades or, or in Inzi or, or other journals, you know, in different times, I think those had an active readership that were waiting to hear what would be next from such and such writer. But the Musterwerk seems to me to be much more of a collection after the fact that you sort of want to see, okay, which works from I.J. Singer are included in here or how did Kaja Molodowski get represented? But um, I don't know that anybody got published in the Musterwerk and then made it big because they found themselves there. But sort of after the fact, you know, it was maybe an honor that they were included. And I imagine um, it was the kind of series that you liked having in your home at the time. Yes, definitely. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, and do you dip into them? Do I personally dip yeah. into them? Sure. I think <laughs> one thing that was so delightful for me is that I was gifted um, a Mustaverk set. Um, and it's, it's not unpacked yet. And it's quite a lot of books, as you can imagine. But uh, to have my own set and to be able to, you know, refer to them. I, of course, the digital library is so useful. And it's very easy to just, you know, be able to access something and carry it on your computer. and quickly, you know, note the page, but to be able to look at the book and then to 
open it and to see the cover and, and so much more that you can learn from the material object is just so delightful. So I, I love looking at them and, and as you say, dipping into them and just sort of opening one and seeing what's inside because there's just so much there. Well, I have to say well done to all of you for making this happen. Um, it's really a boon to translators and scholars and readers and those interested in aspects of Yiddish culture, because it certainly had a, a large role um, in, in that um, heritage. So let's just share with our listeners that they can go onto our website, yiddishbookcenter.org. You can put a search in for Musterwerk and you will find it. Yes, Rochelle. Um, yeah, that's right. Musterwerk. Um, and you'll find it. You'll find if you'd like, there's an annotated guide. And then there's also um, a list with every book in the series with a translated title and a link to it in the library. So I hope that you'll be able to find what you're looking for, even if you're just out to browse and see what there is. And if you want to tell us what your favorite is. Send us, a, send us a note at pt at yiddishbookcenter.org. Um, we'd love to hear from you. Um, and again, thanks for joining me and for your enthusiasm and your deep knowledge um, of the importance of this collection. And I guess we should just spell it. Should we spell it for our um, listeners? Oh, sure. The Musterwerk is spelled M-U-S-T-E-R-V-E-R-K. Thank you. I feel like I made you do um, some kind of a cheer that we would have done at camp. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm very enthusiastic about this series. Uh, um, well, um, I hope you head back into the vault and find some more wonderful things um, because every day is a little bit of a treasure hunt here these days. All right. Great to see you, um, even if virtually in the same building. Um, talk soon. All right. Thank you. You have been listening to The Schmooze, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. To learn more about this podcast and to subscribe, visit YiddishBookCenter.org. I'm Elizabeth Carteropoli. Until next time, be well and be healthy.